Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Growing up, many of us take American literature in high school or college. In those classes, we learn about the influence of transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, Walt Whitman, and Henry David Thoreau for their appreciation of nature and also the argument that God was to be found not necessarily in churches, but in the forests, streams, mountains, and fields. But what if there is more to the story? What if American evangelicalism in the antebellum years leading up to the Civil War transformed the religious life of Americans in relation to the natural environment? Evangelical revivalists in antebellum America often went to the woods using camp meetings, riverside baptism, water cures, and commune with nature to deepen their ties to God. For those alienated by a rapidly industrializing world, revivalists paired personal piety with a mystical relationship to nature. The argument that the evangelical revivalists and not the transcendentalists were the ones who transformed everyday religious life and the spirituality of the natural world is the topic of the book Church in the Wild, Evangelicals in Antebellum America by Dr. Brett Malcolm Granger. Granger is a historian, assistant professor of American spirituality in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University, and he is also an award-winning journalist. In this conversation, we discuss his research, the notion that the revivalists may have been more important than the transcendentalists, faith cures, nature mysticism, and more all in the context of antebellum American life. If you like this show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast, or financially support the show at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brett Malcolm Granger, on the book Church in the Wild, Evangelicals in Antebellum America, out now from Harvard University Press. Dr. Brett Granger, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks, Greg, for having me. Can you just spend a moment and sort of introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. So um, I'm an assistant professor um, of spirituality in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University. Um, I'm a historian. 
by training, um, and I work especially on American religions, and uh, in this recent project, focusing a lot on evangelicals in the early modern period. Wonderful. So that recent project that you just alluded to is your brand new book, Church in the Wild, Evangelicals in Antebellum America, which is out now from Harvard Press. So first of all, congratulations on the release. How long did it take you to work on this project? Sure, yeah. So it's been about 10 years in the making from start to finish. Um, So yeah, a good chunk of time, I'll say. Awesome. Okay. Um, So I was reading the back book jacket the other day, and I saw in your bio that you are a scholar of American religion, a professor, but you are also an award-winning journalist, which intrigued me because I am doing this kind of work with no journalism training. And I'm curious a little bit about your career arc and how all those roles sort of fit together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's sort of like just stepping um, on two sides of the same stream in a way. Um, so, the, you know, long story short, I um, I came out of my undergrad uh, as a religion major and decided I was done with school. I wanted to write for people. So I, I, I got a an internship in um, in journalism in a magazine and spent uh, the better part of eight eight or nine years um, as a journalist, mostly magazines. Uh, but the frustration I found was it was hard to write about the sort of topics that interested me. I was living in Canada. I'm a Canadian. Um, and in Canada at the time, at least, religion was really seen as a kind of a, a quaint uh, historic relic, um, not something that people, you know, had much need for anymore. So that led me back to school. I felt like um, I needed to find a place to explore the sort of questions that interested me. So I ended up back um, in a graduate program at Harvard and uh, and really discovered history there. And, and so history in an academic setting was a way to to tell stories, essentially. Um, the oldest thing that we've we've done, I think, um, as human beings. Awesome. So, so yeah, so that's that's where I, I connect. I still write journalism. I still try and uh, communicate as much as possible for, for larger audiences. Very cool. Well, just a quick aside. Um, I did my master's degree at the University of Saskatchewan out in Saskatoon. And, oh, great. Yeah, and I currently live in Buffalo, New York, and the border is about five minutes away from my house. So I have a deep, deep affinity for Canada. Um, <laughs> it's just wonderful. So if you ever find yourself at Niagara Falls, please let me know, and we will go and hang out, and it'll be a great time. Fabulous. I look forward to it. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm down. Um, so I'm curious about some like turning points, because you have this um, interest in this new book on antebellum evangelicalism. And this is a really fascinating area of academic study. Are there any major like turning points that you can identify in your life where antebellum evangelicalism like really clicked for you as a scholar um, and a writer? Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of came into this project after writing a, a popular book on the history of American fundamentalism, so Christian fundamentalism. Um, and one of the things that I discovered in working on that book was that so much of what we know of as, as American fundamentalism is really a 19th century uh, or late 19th century um, product. So I got got interested in the historical roots of that and then in the process really discovered the antebellum period, uh, which by which we mean, you know, that early American national period between the Revolutionary War and the, um, the Civil War as really a, 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 a very different period in, a, in uh, evangelical history. So this is a period in which 
um, evangelicals are really optimistic about human potential, optimistic about human history, uh, very open to you know influence, uh, very eclectic in their spirituality. In in some ways, really the New Agers of of of, of their time. Um, so it just I just got interested in that period uh, as a time in American history when so much was up for grabs. Um, not just politically, but also in religious terms. Um, and, and so I wanted to, to really get a sense of, of these different doors that uh, evangelicals uh, might have gone through had they persisted with, with the influences and the spirit of those times. Did you have like an advisor or professors that were like helping you realize this path for yourself? Yeah, for sure. So it originated uh, as in my doctoral work at at Harvard, and I worked very closely with a number of people. Um, certainly, really important to it was my advisor, David Hempton, who's the dean right now of Harvard Divinity School. He's one of the leading scholars on Methodism. I uh, couldn't have had anybody anybody better really to advise me on this project. Also, David Hall, a uh, really important scholar of Puritanism, helped me understand the Puritan sources of of nature spirituality as as evangelicals found them uh and then lee schmidt who's just a great cultural historian and really has been a model for me and how to how to tell stories more than anything very cool i like that little homage to some of the people that helped you along the way it's really cool so something this book helped me do is it helped me flip a little bit of what I learned in 11th grade, like American literature <laughs> back in high school. So like in American high schools, we often learn about transcendentalism in 11th grade American lit. And we often credit them with introducing like a spiritual appreciation of nature. But this book, Church in the Wild, tells the story of pre-Civil War American evangelical Christian revivalists who transform American spirituality Christian ties to the natural world. So I have a few basic questions before I get into a more specific question. So I just dropped a lot of terms. And so I'm curious if you can just remind listeners, first and foremost, who the transcendentalists are. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. So the transcendentalists uh, come out of New England in the early 19th century. Really the best way to think of them as a, as a form of American romanticism. So um, those, that emphasis, uh, that you see in, in poetry and other forms of, of writing in, in that period on feeling and intuition that we know through our feelings, we know through our, our gut, right, rather than through external authorities, especially traditions, um, an emphasis on, on, on original uh, inner divine, you know, as opposed to being born with original sin, they believe that we're originally blessed with the mm. sense of, of divine spirit. Um, an emphasis on nature, the natural world as alive and and full of spiritual import, uh, and then also an emphasis on human creativity and, and the arts. These are all elements of the romantic spirit that we associate with the transcendentalists. Okay, cool. Now, on the other hand, who are the evangelical revivalists that are like living around the same time period? Yeah, so so when we think of evangelicals, uh, we we always uh, historians often refer to four features of this. So there's uh, biblicism, um, an emphasis on the Bible as the sole authority in Christian life, um, crucicentrism, which is just a fancy way of saying the cross that individuals are saved by believing in Jesus's death on the cross, uh, evangelism, so the need to go out and spread that message of salvation to others rather than just sitting at home. And finally, activism, this idea that you're supposed to be socially active uh, on behalf of others, or what they often call love of neighbor. Um, 
Now, that's a kind of shorthand for evangelicals. I think in the 19th century, uh, what's what's surprising for many, at least those those familiar with evangelicals today, is to hear how uh, optimistic and politically progressive evangelicals were in the 19th century. This is a group that was really at the forefront of most progressive reform movements, including abolition, prison reform movement, um, go, you go down the list. Um, so that's, uh, I guess that's just a shorthand for, for the, the, the group that I'm looking at in this period. That's so interesting. And I do see trends like that coming back. Like I see a lot of evangelicals doing really important work in climate change today. Is that sort of like a holdover from that era? I think it's a bit of a return. I mean, I think this is a group. The thing about evangelicals is they have very little institutional memory. They think they're all just reading the Bible. And so they, they actually forget um, their, their kind of precursors. And so in a way, new currents come along, the, 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 the cultural climate changes, and they're actually, in, at an individual level, at least very open to uh, discovering new ways to interpret and understand their faith, since they have no central um, uh, interpretive authority like a pope or a bishop. Very cool. So I'm always interested in like filling in little gaps of concepts that I've talked about or never talked about on this show. And I've to date, never said the words revivalism on the show. <laughs> and I'm curious if you could just like, de- how should a listener define revivalism in this context? Yeah. Yeah. So a minute ago, I was talking about the evangelical emphasis on evangelism, this need to spread the word. You know, you can't just keep it to yourself, you got to share it. So revivalism is really um, an expression of that need to evangelize on a mass scale. Um, the revivals, um, those recalling their, their high school education may have heard something about the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards um, and others. The Great Awakening was, was an expression of, of this spirit of revivalism, this, basically huge you know, tent meetings that would, would carry over days and weeks um, where individuals would come and experience a kind of mass conversion um, experience. The closest thing today would be, um, you know, Pentecostal churches, that, that kind of intense, deeply felt, heart, heartfelt, um, emotional, religious release through, through a, a collective experience. Okay, cool. So since we have like a, a definition of all these terms now sort of firmly established, I'm curious about this question um, for you as a scholar. How did you come to realize that the 19th century revivalists were possibly more significant in like nature mysticism than who we often give credit to, which were the transcendentalists? How did you find this this little you know disconnect? Yeah, well, it's such a counterintuitive story, isn't it? That's as a yeah. recovering journalist. That's really what attracted me to it. Was it's exactly the opposite of what we've been told and of what we would expect given what we know today of, of evangelicals is that they tend to be suspicious of, of, evangel- of um, environmentalism, you know, with a few exceptions, suspicious of climate change. They tend to see nature as this, this thing that we can sort of harness uh, and, and utilize in an instrumental sense. Um, the opposite of, of a kind of liberal nature spirituality. So, I mean, where this started for me was, was really reading some of the uh, sources of this, of this story, this idea that it's the transcendentalists that give us nature, uh, spirituality. And the real founder of that narrative is Perry Miller, who's, um, early 20th century American historian. He 
really gave us the modern study of, of Puritanism and transcendentalism. He's a beautiful writer, a powerful thinker. Um, and, and when you go and you look at his work, you see how he's really opposing these two forces in, in 19th century American religious culture, romanticism on the one hand and revivalism. And the way that Perry Miller told the story was that the, the cult of nature in America comes out of a disenchantment with religious orthodoxy. Essentially, if you turn to the book of nature, it means you have to leave the book of scripture behind, right? Um, these were people who wanted a bigger, more expansive faith. Mm. So, um, so the more I thought about this, the, the more this just didn't fit with the sources. If you look at the, the sources that, uh, that 19th uh, century evangelicals have left behind, these are popular sources. You look at their journals, you look at their hymns, you look at their letters and their poetry and their short stories. They are absolutely the opposite of, of, of Perry Miller's description. They are besotted with nature. They are fully engaged in interpreting um, uh, the spiritual meanings of the natural world. Um, so I really just wanted to, to try and pull together these materials and try to recreate a portrait of this very representational uh, American religious movement, much more representational in many ways than the transcendentalists who were always, um, I love the transcendentalists, but a very, in the 19th century at least, very regional movement, a very elite movement of readers um, compared to revivalism at least. Okay, awesome. So you, you just like talked about a lot of things with relation to uh, maybe possibly overlooked sources. And mm-hmm. one of the things I always like asking um, historians and authors is why they start their books the way they do. And I think that the um, allusions you just made about these overlooked hymns is relevant here. So um, a while back I had uh, Dr. Rachel Lindsay. She's a professor at SLU. And I asked her why she started her book, Communion of Shadows, with the story of a 22-year-old soldier in the Civil War named Walter Jones. So I want to pose the same question to you about Jeremiah Ingalls. Mm-hmm. So we often know about the Wesleys and things and people like that, but how did you discover the life of Jeremiah Ingalls, and <laughs> why did you start the book with him? Because that's, you know, that's a choice that you as the writer had to make whenever you're putting this thing together. Yeah, it's true. We're always, as historians, looking for these these small stories that can open up these big problems, yes. big questions, offer us new ways of reading these larger narratives that we, we impose um, on, on a country as large as America. So Ingalls, right? Uh, I found him because I was spending a lot of time looking through these shape note hymnals. So as you said, you know, we know a lot about, there's been a lot of work done on the, the kind of elite evangelical elites, the Wesley brothers who wrote in this beautiful Oxford English. But historians have spent next to no attention looking at the popular hymns that were written in the period. And Jeremiah Ingalls is a great example of that. This is a guy who was trained as a cooper, um, who worked as a farmer and as a tavern keeper in Newbury, Vermont. He sang in the choir of the local Congregationalist Church. And he also, in his spare time, um, he composed um, songs. And uh, in 1805, he, he published uh, the Christian Harmony, which is a collection of basically spiritual folk songs. And um, what, I, what really struck me reading Ingalls' um, shape note hymnal and, and others like it, because these were really popular in the 19th century, even though they disappear um, uh, after the interbellum period. But 
these songs were just really shot through with um, really firsthand uh, accounts. It's almost like you're reading pages from, from their diaries. Uh, and they're really marked by a kind of agricultural experience of the land. Um, so Ingalls, for me, offered a way really to, to overturn Perry Miller's whole characterization of an inherent opposition between elite romanticism you know, and, and revivalism. Uh, that somehow you couldn't have the book of nature and the book of scripture hand in hand. Um, Perry Miller actually said in one of his writings, he, he said, uh, um, anyone who knows the New England peasantry knows you can never get an authentic Vermont, Vermont farmer to admire the view. Well, uh, you know, Jeremiah Ingalls, he was a Vermont farmer and he, he knew <laughs> a nice view when he found one. Yeah. And one of my, one of my favorite hymns that I could just quote, uh, one of Ingalls compositions, which is called honor to the Hills, uh, goes through all this world below God, we see all around search hills and valleys through there. He's found in growing fields of corn, the lily and the thorn, the pleasant and forlorn. All declare God is there in meadows dressed in green. There he's seen. So, you know, in other words, Ingalls, I think, and others, uh, hopefully uh, throughout the book, really demonstrate, really refute this idea that in the 19th century, at least, evangelicals are hostile um, to, to nature spirituality. What kind of like archival digging did you have to do to find books like this that have been lost mm-hmm. to time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple places were really helpful to me in this work. Um, I love I love working in the archives, um, and a fellowship at the American Antiquarian Society was really important in the early period in getting this going. Uh, I found a lot of um, uh, revivalist hymnals there. I also found a lot of great lithographs. So scholars um, of art history have paid a lot of attention to you know, the beautiful landscape painting of the Hudson River School uh, and others, but they paid very little attention to cheap available lithographs, which was how most Americans encountered their art. Um, So that was a big boon. Um, The Congregational Library in Boston was also great at accessing some materials on Theophilus Packard, who's a a congregational minister and a, a mesmerist, animal magnetist, who I look at in the last chapter of the book. Amherst College was really great. Their archives on Edward Hitchcock were super helpful. And then I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but um, Google Books is oh, yeah. absolute, it's a boon for anybody working in the 19th century because the copyright restrictions are lifted on all those materials and everything has been scanned. So it's, it's super easy to do um, word searches of, of documents if you can narrow it by the period and just it's a great place, a clearinghouse, really, uh, to get started on finding interesting resources. Beautiful. I love that it's so accessible. Um, yeah. So I want to discuss a little bit about the structure of the book and get in a little bit of the contents as well. So earlier, early in the book, you discuss outdoor practices that lead to conversion. What is uh, what's most commonly used in that time period? Yeah. So the practices that are most important for conversion in the 19th century are uh, uh, camp meetings and outdoor baptism. So camp meetings are basically these extended revivals that would go for uh, sometimes weeks at a time, uh, typically in the late summer or the fall when it's a little cooler. Um, And they were just like wild, raucous, uh, basically Pentecostal meetings in the woods. Um, 
Uh, and the second practice uh, that was important for me was, was outdoor baptism. Just, uh, you know, we might know this from uh, films like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's mm. a very famous uh, scene of outdoor baptism there. Um, and so I just wanted to explore the ways in which natural environments provided not just the setting for evangelical conversion, but also the source of their religious experience, right? It wasn't just a backdrop. It was something which they uh, drew upon very deeply in, in seeking out um, or engaging in the pursuit of the immediate presence of, of God in and through the natural world. Awesome. So, you know, a moment ago when you read that um, that Ingalls hymn mm-hmm. or, you know, recited it from memory, um, one of the things that really struck me, and it connected to a term in the book, is that he seems to be, like, venerating this natural mm-hmm. environment, this setting. Mm-hmm. And in the book, that relates to me to your fantastic term, my favorite term in the whole book, <laughs> tolerable idolatry. So what's the importance of, like, sacred sites and how do you tie yeah. it into this term, tolerable idolatry? Yeah, it, it is one of my favorite phrases as well from the book. I just love it. Um, it's, again, the counterintuitive value of it, right? The last thing you would want to associate with evangelicals was idolatry, right? It's what they're so anxious about. God's transcendent. God is outside of space and time. It's Catholics we associate with the veneration of, of the real presence, right, within uh, the host in the Mass or within sacred sites, like pilgrimage sites. Um, but what you find, I think, when you look at the, the materials that these uh, evangelicals have left behind, is a real enthusiasm with, with, it, with locating the sacred in particular places, in particular times. And it's because they're, so, um, they're, so, they're such mystics in a way. They, they don't want to debate the existence of God. They want to feel uh, and know the presence of God in time and space. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, actually the place I got this term, tolerable idolatry from, is from a William Cowper poem. William Cowper is an English poet, and uh, he wrote a, a poem called The Yardley Oak in uh, 1790s. And the, in the poem he says, Could a mind imbued with truth from heaven, created thing adore, I might with reverence kneel and worship thee. He's speaking here of an old, beautiful old tree that he finds. And then he says, it seems idolatry with some excuse when our forefather druids in their oaks imagined sanctity. Mm-hmm. So what I find in this poem, right, and, in, and actually reflected in the practice of, of these 19th century evangelicals, was on the one hand an anxiety, right, about locating the sacred t- too firmly in time and space, right, making an idol of a tree, making an idol of a stretch of, of, of river. Um, but on the other hand, they're just as worried, if not more worried, with, with what I call infidelity. That infidelity is, in this case, a failure to recognize Christ's immediate presence in their midst, his immediate availability in time and space to them. Evangelicals, more than anything, want to, um, to feel it, right? They want to know Christ's uh, presence in their heart. And so out of this fear of infidelity, they're almost driven to a kind of tolerable idolatry hmm. uh, because, because the, um, the risk of not recognizing uh, God's presence is greater to them right? because um, 
for many reasons, but one of which is that it, it could lead you um, to rely on the wrong sorts of things like external authorities rather than a personal experience. So, Brett, as I was reading your book, and I'm, I'm putting together pieces as I'm listening to some of your answers here, your book reads differently than almost any book I've ever talked about on this show. Like, your, <clears throat> your written voice is so different um, than, than most books I read. And it's just so vivid, and it's so poetic, and I'm listening to you talk about all these, all these writings and all these authors— and now I can see why your book reads the way it does. Like your immersion, <laughs> yeah, like your immersion in these sources and these poems and these hymns, it comes through in your writing as well. Like I can tell that you have like lived and breathed these sources that you have put into this book. Like it's, um, I just love it. You know, thanks. I appreciate it. So um, what is the book of nature? You mentioned that earlier. And I'm curious about like if, con if natural contemplation is gone from American Christianity mm. today, if it's making mm. a comeback, what is this book of nature thing that you talked about maybe like 10 or 15 minutes ago? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very ancient trope in, in Christian spirituality. It goes all the way back to the writing of Augustine and, and even Origen, who's uh, even earlier than Augustine. So it's, it's an ancient Christian habit of of reading in, or actually of viewing the natural world as a book, in some ways as God's first book, um, as, as encoded with divine signatures that are meant to be um, interpreted and deciphered by the faithful um, in ways that completely cohere uh, with, with revealed scripture. So, uh, so it's a very old habit, in other words, um, and what I'm basically saying uh, about 19th century evangelicals is that despite their best efforts to rid themselves of, of practices such as contemplation, which they viewed as, uh, at least rhetorically, as, as a Catholic habit, right, as a kind of work that you could do, as opposed to the grace that Protestants um, talk about as, as the uh, only thing that you can rely on, despite their, their rhetorical repudiation of these practices, they just find themselves doing them all over again or reinventing them uh, in new forms. So, so it's in a way a kind of uh, story of, of the afterlife of Christian mysticism in, in the places where you would least expect to find them. Do you think, um, it's, do you think it's coming back? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is, this is you know, an important question, right? What happens to these practices of, of contemplation and of nature spirituality in the 20th century? I think that's a really complicated question, and um, I think it has to do with uh, a, a bunch of things. But I, I will say that uh, I do see several signs that evangelicals today are really hungry for this kind of um, spirituality. And, and one, I think one of the clearest signs of that is the fact that they're going back. You see uh, many of the classic works of devotion that 19th century evangelicals relied on as guides, as devotional guides in these sorts of uh, habits, um, were Puritan manuals of devotion um, that they found and republished. Um, they went out of uh, print in the late 19th century, but what you see now is actually a real rediscovery of Puritan spirituality on the part of a lot of evangelicals. And I think that's, that's actually a sign um, that there's, there's a new kind of openness uh, t towards these these older habits. Okay. Um, yeah, I was really intrigued as well 
um, some of the information in the book describing the alternative medical therapies that you included. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, just loved those parts. Can you discuss like the prevalence of belief around like the healing powers of things like mineral springs? Because this is, uh, you know, this might this is forgotten to a lot of people. I think totally forgotten. I mean, nature cure was a, a major uh, fad in the 19th century. This belief that nature, rather than uh, medical science, offered the cure for basically every physical ailment. Um, and there was reason that they believed that, right? Medicine did very little to help people before the invention of, of antibiotics. Uh, most of the, the medical, orthodox medical practices that were available were really uh, uh, dangerous. Uh, it killed a lot of people. Um, and so this turn to nature, this, this, this notion that nature holds within itself a kind of providential um, uh, a cure was really appealing to evangelicals because um, they they saw you know medical reform in this sense reform with of medicine as an extension of the kind of religious reform that they'd been preaching um, for since the Reformation basically so so uh, I, I write a whole chapter on water cure so this this specific fad that really took root in America uh, in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, focused on on uh, basically going to a, a mineral spring, these naturally occurring mineral springs, and basically just parking yourself there for days or weeks and quaffing this, this sulfurous waters in the belief that you could find um, you know cure for different physical ailments there. Evangelicals loved these mineral springs, and not just for their physical cures. They believed that the physical cures were actually um, uh, analogs, right? What they did was that they pointed you providentially to the spiritual cure um, of of salvation through Christ. So just as the waters provided by God here offered cures for the for the body, uh, the blood that had been shed by Christ um, uh, provided the cure for the soul. So they believed, in other words, that if you took seriously what was operating these springs, that you would be led Inevitably, to 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 uh, to, to, uh, to the cross and to um, evangelical conversion. They also loved um, temperance and uh, the, this movement to limit uh, uh, alcohol consumption and, and alcoholic uh, rates of alcoholism in the 19th century were just off the charts. Um, but they believed that uh, their move for temperance reform was was connected closely to their support for the the miraculous cures of of water in this case. Um, so yeah, those were just a few reasons that, that evangelicals were gaga for water cure in the 19th century. It's awesome. And yeah, when you said totally forgotten, like I latched onto that because that is just, <laughs> that, that's so interesting. The differences and similarities. So something I'm curious about is jumping off from that differences and similarities between then and now, are there any traditions out there today where people are sort of, doing these things that you're talking mm-hmm. about, like we would recognize it if we saw it today, but we would also recognize it in like pre-Civil War Christianity? Yeah, I think, I think there is continuity and change um, in, the, in, the, in the post-bellum period. I think you do lose a lot of the um, rites, the practices of conversion that were really tied to physical spaces in nature. So for instance, um, urban urbanization in the, in the 19th century the po- really comes to America after the Civil War. And all these Americans leave the farm and go to the city. 
And I think what, what happens there is the, 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 the focus of evangelical attention turns from the country, turns from the camp meetings uh, into the city. It becomes an urban revival. It becomes tent meetings um, like Billy Graham's mm. and Crusade. So they just lose connection with, with, with certain types of physical landscapes. Um, Baptists, similarly, um, they, they go from river baptisms to, you know, what most Baptists experience today, which is, you know, get, you get dunked in a, in a tank in, inside a building. Right? Yeah. Right? So there's a building boom. Evangelicals get gentrified. They get middle class, and they want to look like other Protestants. And so they, they build these big, impressive buildings, and in a way that kind of buffers them. From natural space, so there is a, a shift and a decline in some some ways uh, from the practices that I look at. Yeah, but I also think there's innovation and there's and there's development. There are new practices that come along to meet the new needs of the time. What you see in the 20th century is uh, you know the, the birth of groups like the YMCA, the explosion of summer camping, you know, movement, recreational fishing and hunting, mountain climbing and hiking, and these these are all explicitly spiritual practices. Uh, in their origins. Um, and so with new practices come new ideas about, uh, about the natural world. Um, but I think a lot of this, a lot of the, the kind of nature spirituality that I track is, is really continuing, but under new forms and, and under new names. So urbanization did not necessarily kill nature mysticism. No, but it definitely changes the stakes because uh, in the 20th century, what you have is is a kind of nostalgia for nature that appears um, because uh, Americans become concerned um, that their civilization is being undercut by uh, uh, through urbanization, essentially. And so, when you reconnect with nature um, through camping trips or, or, or you know canoeing or fishing or whatever, that's different than than encountering nature as in an agricultural setting, right? Where it's sort of your your everyday world, if you want. Yeah. Um, do we have any groups, like any religious groups, that you would consider nature mystics today? Yeah, I mean, I one of my big gambits here is is saying that we need to use this word mysticism when we talk about evangelical habits. Um, I think, you know, um, Pentecostals, in, in many ways, look look like um, the mystics that I'm describing in the 19th century, this desire for um, um, ecstatic experiences, um, speaking in tongues, um, uh, the direct witness of the Holy Spirit, you know, those are all um, uh, an extension of of longstanding uh, habits in Christian mysticism. Um, Yeah. So my uh, question I, I wonder is, I'm an English teacher, a high school English teacher, and say I were, uh, you know, I, I would want to teach about these things in school to, you know, sort of not not like remove the transcendentalists, but refocus yeah. the conversation to give everybody their due credit. How hard do you think it would be to help society recognize the prevalence of American revivalists when transcendentalists are like so ingrained in our schools and cultural life? Yeah, it's it's really it's really tough, right? I mean, one of the problems is is it's such a great story. Um, the story that Perry Miller told is just a great story. It's hard to uproot that narrative, um, and it's also the case that it's easy, as you know, for if you're teaching high school, it's easy to just have them read um, a chapter from Thoreau's Walden, you know, mm-hmm. or an excerpt from Ralph Waldo Emerson's Nature, and they get it right away. 
Um, so, and, and also the fact is that evangelicals didn't produce the literary equivalent of those writers. Um, they weren't, they just weren't as, as, as good with the English <laughs> language. Yeah. So it's, it's harder to kind of reconstruct, uh, as I've tried to do in this book, you, you know, a, a, a whole worldview. That takes a lot of painstaking effort um, and imagination to really reconstruct those lost worlds. But I think, you know, I think actually, in a way, um, the hymns are the best place to start. I think going to these um, these revivalist hymns, it's like Jeremiah Engel's uh, Christian Harmony. You just you can encounter it directly in the verse. This kind of intimate, intense heartfelt experience of the supernatural within the natural world. Um, I think that would be a great place to start. Awesome. Okay, well, Dr. Brett Granger, while I still have you uh, on the line, so your brand new book, Church in the Wild, Evangelicals in Antebellum America, is brand new from Harvard University Press. It's out now. Um, And I'm curious if you could suggest to any interested listeners or readers out there, um, you know, where they might find you, where they can find your books, what other books you have, like where would you direct people if they want to follow up on this conversation in your work? Great, yeah. So if they're interested in in the second part of this story, basically how uh, evangelicals become fundamentalists, I I did write a book on that um, called In the World But Not Of It, and you can get that on Amazon or uh, any any through any bookseller. Um, I don't have a website. I'm working on that. Uh, most of my materials, uh, other essays I've written, including popular work, uh, can be found on my uh, my website on uh, my web page rather on academia.edu. I guess that's the best place to start. Brilliant. Okay. Well, Dr. Brett Granger, I really appreciate your time, and I love the book, and it's reframing a lot of the way I think about antebellum Christianity, which is really, really cool. I love it when that happens, and uh, I look forward to following your work from here on out. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. It was great talking to you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.